Good day, listeners. Welcome to the Growth Equation Podcast. I'm Clay Skipper, joined by Steve Magnus and Brad Stahlberg, who you will be hearing from shortly, as always. First, a little bit of administrative notes. We are going to be relaunching in the new year as Farewell. And the reason for doing that is not because the content is going to change a ton, but because we do have some big things coming in 2024. And we are making the podcast a little bit different and making it a little bit more of a priority. I think that's fair to say. And so we wanted to rebrand it as a, as a sort of demarcate internally, but also externally that we've got some new stuff coming. And that is going to include a lot more interviews. So we'll all be based around the idea of performance, helping you guys perform your best on the things you care about most. It's going to be interviews with people who have studied performance or who perform at a very high level at their craft. It's going to continue to be roundtables like the one you are going to hear today, which is end of year roundtable between Brad, Steve, and myself reflecting on some things from the year. We'll still have those roundtables in 2024. So you're going to get a ton of Steve and Brad. We do not want that to go away. That is the cream of the crop right there. That's why people come to the growth equation. And then we will also have a smart, a smaller, shorter episode called the coach up, which is if you think of the interviews with these people who have studied performance as sort of the theory the coach up will be five to 10, 15 minute episodes that are about how to put that theory into practice. It's sort of the tools in your toolkit. So that is what we have coming. It's a slate of new stuff, stuff that we are very excited about. I've been recording these interviews for the last two to three months, and I'm really excited to share them with you guys. But the important thing is that the podcast is going to have a different name. So if you usually get these podcasts by searching the growth equation, in the new year, you're going to have to search farewell. And one way to solve that trick right now is just go ahead and subscribe to the Growth Equation podcast because then when we upload things under the name farewell, it'll be on the same feed and they will just show up on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, wherever you you get your podcast. So rebranding in the new year as farewell, all the same great content you've come to love and enjoy. Also some new stuff. Most important thing is to subscribe now. Guys, Love did it, I miss Clay. anything? No, I was just going to add, it's not going to be different. It's going to be better. And we've gotten a behind the scenes look at the episodes that are coming out next year. And I can confidently say that this is about making the podcast better. When we went out and approached Clay to partner with us, the goal was to make the podcast a national world-class enterprise. We want it to be on the same level as our books. And we feel like it will be at the start of next year. Um, so it's going to be great. It is not another two and a half, three hour long form interview show. There are plenty of those that are very good. And it's also not just going to be me and Steve talking because we've done that for the last three years. And to be honest, we're running out of good stuff to say. Uh, it is going to be something that is new in this space, which is a hybrid of relatively compact interviews, all focused on craft, as we like to say, knowing and then also the coach up, which will be focused on doing an application. So much like everything we try to do, it's going to be part of your one-stop shop for all things related to performance and performance in the way that we define it, which as Clay said, it's all about getting the best out of yourself on the things that you care about most. So be sure to subscribe today to the growth equation so you don't have to do anything different at the start of the new year. And in the future, if you do need to search for an episode, search farewell. F-A-R-E-W-E-L-L. Those of you that are subscribed to the newsletter, you'll hear about it there as well. You'll get the new logo. Just great things ahead. Um, so I think that that really covers it. I have nothing to add except that if you think of it like this, the podcast so far has been Brad and I signing on saying, oh man, we have to record a podcast. Let's think of a topic Here's a couple minutes. Let's dive into it. And now we're upping our game. And this is why Clay is here. And this is why we're making this change. Because not only is Clay interviewing great folks and getting some great uh, you know, practical takeaways, but Brad and I are being forced to prepare. So we have ideas that Clay is 
is generating on what the roundtables are and the topics. So not only is Clay bringing his A game, he is forcing Brad and I to do so as well. So we're really looking forward to this one. So you're going to love it. Subscribe as everyone else has already said. And uh, with that, let's let's get into this week's uh, roundtable. Well, if I can have one more thing, in case it needs to be said, it is not a podcast about goodbyes. Uh, in case the name is confusing anyone by being called Farewell, the idea behind performance is that if you are faring well, you will perform your best. So that it's it's a little bit of pun on words. Maybe the pun isn't amazing if you have to explain it. The joke, if you have to explain a joke, it's not the funniest joke. But I think it works. But I just wanted to say that in case anyone out there is thinking, huh, this is going to be all about how to say goodbye. On to the roundtable. This is this will be this is mid December when you guys are listening to this. Maybe you're listening to it later, but this will come out mid December, right around the holidays. Happy holidays, everyone! Obviously, this is a time of year people are doing a lot of reflecting, what they learned in the past year, maybe what they want to carry forward into the new year. So we thought it'd be fun today to do a little of that together and publicly share some of the things we've taken from 2023 and want to change or carry into 2024. So Brad, Steve, and I had a few questions and prompts that we shared with one another. The first of which was, what's one habit each of us started doing this year that we took, want to take into 2024? We also said you could share maybe a habit you stopped if you want to do that. So I've been take, talking a lot, so I will not start first here. I will kick it over to Brad to answer that question. Well, I am going to talk about a habit that I started and then stopped and then hope to start again. And that is the digital Sabbath. So in short, it is Saturday morning to Sunday morning. I put my phone, my computer, all digital devices away, and I am essentially offline for a 24-hour period. And the number one barrier to doing this was my wife saying, well, what if we have to split up? You have to take one kid to swimming. I have to take the other kid to basketball. What if there's an emergency? So on and so forth. That was easily solved by purchasing a jitterbug flip phone, which has really no connectivity other than making phone calls. And if I were to fall, there's an emergency button that will contact the paramedics for me. Um, It's a very cheap plan. I believe it's $18 a month. There are discounts for AARP members, which I am not one yet, although this is accelerating my path to becoming one. So I started this habit at the beginning of the year, and it was wonderful. The first five, six weeks were tough. I felt that urge to check for my phone and a little bit of anxiety that I wasn't online, but I grooved into it and Saturday became my favorite day of the week. And um, then my book came out and a book launch is a real crater on anything related to work, life, boundaries, and self-care. And a lot of people are on the internet on the weekend and we sell the vast majority of our books on the internet. So I told myself that come September, I would suspend the digital Sabbath to allow myself to promote the book. And that bled into October. It bled into November. And now, of course, the story I'm telling myself, people buy books around the holidays, people are on the internet on the weekend, might as well do it through the end of the year. And come January, I am going to go back to the strict digital Sabbath, even if that means having Caitlin, my wonderful wife, hide my phone and my computer um, because I really came to value those those days. So um, yeah, Saturday morning to Sunday morning, I'll leave the devices behind and uh, it'll allow me to connect with myself and other people and ideas in a way that is um, a little less frantic and uh, distractible. You know, I, I can't top that because I am uh, not getting a, a phone that would put me in prime uh, prime position to run for president as a 80-year-old. <laughs> but I applaud, I applaud Brad for bringing in a new demographic and maybe a new sponsor for, for the uh, show. I would love it. But in, in all seriousness, okay, so mine's not as complex. I'll give you, I'll give you two to keep it simple. Uh, started uh, my midday walk. You know, uh, my wife and I usually take a evening walk, walk the dog. Um, but 
now that she's gone back to work and I often have to take care of our, um, our infant, you know, in the middle of the day between naps, you know, we get tired of playing on the floor with random toys and just go for a walk. And I love it because a, she enjoys it. It keeps her happy for 45 minutes. And then B it's like this mid work break, um, thinking time. I don't take my phone. I just kind of think and often come up with ideas. So I love that. And then one that I've stopped. So I have, uh, as many listeners know, like I have OCD and around that I've always had some, we'll call them, I don't know, ticks that are just like compensations that I used growing up to like cope with it. And I stopped all the ones that were like really annoying. Um, but I had a couple that were just kind of, eh, I'm like, oh, this isn't a big deal, like whatever. So I decided to uh, stop some of those, mainly because they were annoying my wife. But it was also good for me to grow. So one of them was, for instance, I did. I haven't had hair on my knuckles since I was like, I don't know, 12, 13, because like I would pick the hair off. And for OCD, it's a kind of like, it's it's like a stemming. You feel the OCD, which is like the anxiety around the thought, et cetera. And to cope with that, you get some other feeling. So for me, for a long time, it was like, just pick the hair on my knuckles. And, you know, I just stopped it. So it sounds really weird, but it was worthwhile. And it gave me like a little more control over something that, uh, you know, I've had to deal with for a long time. Hillary likes those hairy knuckles. I'm not going to comment on that. <laughs> <laughs> that that is uh that is a shockingly because we didn't plan this at all. Good segue to what I stopped doing this year, Steve, which is, and this is going to sound crazy, so bear with me. But one thing that I stopped doing was going to therapy, and let me say that I was fortunate enough to have a therapist who I really enjoyed and who was very helpful for me. I did it for six years and I'm very grateful to my therapist and to have been able to have afforded that. Um, but I think we just hit a point where it sort of had run its course and we got to a point where I was stuck. And the reason I said it was a segue, Steve, is because the thing that I kept struggling with that kept coming up was some stuff around OCD. And my therapist was very helpful in in helping me navigate it. But I just felt like we got to a point where we couldn't get past. And I kept going in there every week, like wanting and hoping that the therapy would, and I'm putting this in quotes, fix me. And as you know, I've talked a lot with you, Brad, like this idea that wanting to get fixed is actually contributing to the idea of being stuck, especially with OCD. Like if you're trying to always problem solve your way out of it, and sounds like something you're just talking about there, Steve, it can actually sort of make the compulsions or the obsessions worse. And so, yeah, actually I stopped because I, I kept hearing my head this idea to like, if you don't like nothing changes, if nothing changes, and I just didn't want to be stuck anymore. So I was like, all right, maybe a different therapist would help or maybe a different form of therapy, but I stopped doing it as a way to try to change something. And we'll see. It's an ongoing process. I don't know if it was a good decision or a bad decision. It was a decision I made at a moment in time with the information I had. And we'll see going forward. The thing I started doing that's sort of related to it is I have started this practice of trying to, and I fail a lot. Uh, I know, Brad, you talked about starting and stopping when to start again, is writing letters to myself on Sunday. And the idea, it's for like one or two weeks in the future. And the idea is just to give myself some intentions and things to work towards. And then also on the day I, I, I read it, it's always like a helpful little reminder of like, oh, yeah, like a past you has sent current you a like it's a way of talking between selves and has sent current you a little reminder of what you should be focused on in case you've um, lost the plot a little bit or lost your your priorities. So that has been very, very helpful for me and something that I'm hoping to continue to do at least 60 to 80% of the time every Sunday. Wow, we could have the OCD podcast. Um, <laughs> we, 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 we really could, given given how the three of our brains work. It reminds me of a nice little parable, Clay, um, where you imagine that 
it can be any creature. And the example I heard, it's a monkey and the monkey's got some fruit underground and it's like way underground and it sticks its hand underground and then it gets stuck way deep in a hole. And at first it has no idea what to do or how it's stuck. So it holds on to the fruit and it navigates its way around and around and around. And then it gets to the hole and it still can't get out. It's stuck and it's pulling and it's pulling and it's pulling. And what it has to do is it has to drop the fruit. And once it drops the fruit, then its hand can fit out. And it's this notion of you have to try really, really, really hard sometimes to get out of a certain situation or to break a certain habitual thought pattern or mood state. And then oftentimes the last part is just letting go altogether. Yeah. And um, perhaps that's what you're doing. And, and I hope that it has that same effect. Yeah, me too. I think it also reminds, and I'll try to keep this brief because I know we just did a, a, set, um, a podcast on Mark Epstein and I feel like people are going to be like, Mark Epstein is your guru. But when he talks about combining therapy with a spiritual practice, his point is that therapy can help you become more yourself by helping you realize ways in which you've been conditioned or patterned and helping you realize what things are authentic to you and what are maybe defensive or protective mechanisms you develop. And so therapy can help you become more yourself, which I have found to be very true. But then a spiritual practice can help you take yourself less seriously, like to to not be so self-serious and not to to not make everything about pathologizing or making everything have a meaning. And I felt like going to therapy every week, I was starting to just take myself way too seriously and get way too caught up in like excavating stories and trying to get everything a meaning and try to get to the root of the problem. And so I was like, all right, I need to take myself. I've gotten all these great help, all this help from my therapist to be more myself and notice my patterns, but I need to stop taking myself so seriously. Now, fitness, physical fitness, movement, practice. Um, what is one goal or something you guys, uh, uh, an idea you're carrying into or you want to achieve in, in 2024? Steve, let's start with you. All right. As listeners or readers might know, I hate goals around fitness because I set them for so long, but I do actually have one this, this year. This very simple. Um, sprint more. And the reason is is a couple of reasons. Well, one, I'm getting old. And what's one of the things that goes when you get old? You're sprinting in power. One of the reasons is you just stop activating, we'll call them the fast twitch muscle fibers, because like you never do anything to activate them, like when you were young. So one of my goals is just to sprint more, but it goes a little deeper than that, because in order to sprint more, I'm going to actually have to do like, the rehab, the preventative work to keep myself healthy, healthy, because I can go jog or run moderately hard all day and probably not get some sort of serious injury. But if I'm going to go sprint up a hill, which is where I'll start and then eventually move to doing some sprints on the track, um, I've actually got to have things kind of working and fine tuned and um, ready to go. So it's, it's my roundabout way of forcing me to do the little things and drills and some strength work that um, that I hate doing because it would be much easier to just go out the door and not do anything. So what kind of sprints are you going to do? Like, are we, ta- are we talking like 100 meters, 400 meter consider a sprint? No, no, we're talking sprints, man. Okay. Speed. Um, okay. So my progression is pretty simple. Um, I start with sprinting up a hill. So kind of like a moderate you know, steepness, not too steep. We don't have anything too steep. So I couldn't if I wanted to, but I shouldn't anyways. So sprinting up a hill because the injury risk is lower because of, uh, your stride essentially isn't being, you're not going through a full stride because you're running up a a slant and it shifts the, the mechanics a little bit. So the injury risk is, is lower. So always start sprinting up a hill, um, eight to 10 seconds in length, you know, full recovery, the goal isn't to get fatigued. The goal is to go fast and feel good going fast. And then over time, I'll increase the number of those sprints. And then over time, I'll start transition to some on the track and I'll work into kind of building up with like, you know, some run-ins where I'll, you know, jog 
20 meters into acceleration for 40, 50 meters and, and slow down. Um, and then I'll lengthen that out. I mean, if all goes according to plan, so 60 meters, 80 meters, do some hundreds, see what I can run in a hundred, probably feel pretty bad about myself and then, um, then stop. All right. So we're going to have to wait till 2025 to get you into deadlifting, which is what we were, we were hoping for. It'll, it will never happen. Never, never, ever. There's, there's no, there's not going to be any, you know, hybrid athlete is I think what they're calling them nowadays. No, no, I, I don't need to deadlift anything. Brad's got that covered. We all, we can only have one meathead in the podcast is the rule I hear. <laughs> yeah. in our OCD podcast sponsored by Jitterbug, we can only have one meathead. Uh, so Brad, what is, what is your, uh, physical fitness goal for 2024 or one of them? We should, we don't need to limit ourselves to one goal. I would like to deadlift 4.2 Magnuses. And you're already at four, right? I'm already at four. So a Magnus is 125 pounds. Cause that's about what Steve weighs soaking wet. And I'm currently at four Magnuses and I would like to pull it's actually more than 4.2. I did the math wrong. It's closer to 4.4. I'd like to pull 4.4 Magnuses or approximately 550 pounds by the end of next year. You know, I just got to say, um, I think you're cheating yourself because I haven't weighed 125 pounds since I was like, I don't know, 11 years old. So you, you forget, Brad, I'm I'm 5'11". So even at my skinniest, I'm 140-ish. So you're going to have to up your game. So for someone who's a, like somewhat ignorant about deadlifts, so you're lifting 500, you're, you're trying to add 50 pounds in a year. How difficult does that sound to you? That sounds extremely difficult, but I'm not trying to add 50 pounds in a year because I think my current fitness is probably closer to 520 or 530 pounds. I just haven't pulled a heavy single rested since June. So I'm operating under the assumption that let's say it's 525 pounds right now. So it's adding 25 pounds. Now going from 300 to 325 is a lot easier than going from 525 to 550. Uh, the next pound is always harder than the last. And I also want to maintain around the same body weight. I don't want to get really, really big just to chase this goal. Um, so it, it's going to be hard, but I think doable. Sounds like a good goal. Get you in the flow state. Get get me in the flow state. Pursue that mastery and that craft, um, and really continue to refine the skill element of it. Something that I find really interesting and has been a very fun surprise about getting into powerlifting is it's a lot more like swimming than it is like doing a bunch of push-ups until you puke. Um. A good deadlift is like swimming in the sense that if you try to push the water back way too hard and kick way too hard, i.e. jerk the bar or like really grind or grit through a lift, you don't really get stronger. But if you can feel the bar and feel the lockout and feel the pressure going through your foot and how your posterior chain and your quadriceps are interacting, you can pull 550 pounds and it can feel like nothing. Uh, so it's really the skill development part that I find, um, really interesting. I'll never wait. I shouldn't say never, never say never. I don't think I'll get into weightlifting. Weightlifting is like more complex movements, like the clean and jerk and the snatch. And no one knows what I'm talking about at my gym because no one else is in the media and writes. But the way that I frame it is weightlifting is like reading the New Yorker and powerlifting is like reading the Atlantic. So I'm not going to read the New Yorker. It's too long. It's too complex. I, I, I just don't have time. <laughs> That's it. Has that analogy that has not landed with anyone at your gym? I like that analogy. It's landed with a few people, but weightlifting is like the elitist sport because it's multiple movements. It requires a lot more intellect than powerlifting. Uh, but there's still a lot that goes into a, a good a good deadlift per se. So yeah, that's my goal. 550 pounds. We'll see. The other thing that I'll mention here for the audience that's really into sport is we could do a whole episode on this. Just the importance of fit before grit 
or finding something that your genetics and your body are generally good at. And I talk about this with Steve offline all the time. Clay, I now think we've discussed it. But for about 10 years after high school, I tried to run a sub three marathon. And I trained really smart. I trained pretty hard. I had decent coaching. And I could never do it. I got to 301, pretty gutting. Maybe I just didn't want it bad enough. But I could never do it. I had stress fractures, getting down to 165 pounds felt really, really hard. Being any bigger, I'd constantly have stress fractures. Um, I've been training hard in powerlifting for not even three years. And my deadlift is probably the equivalent of like a 235, 240 marathon. So 10 years, couldn't break three. Then not even three years in another sport, and I'm down to the equivalent of 240, 235. And I'm not working as hard. I mean, I got kids now. I don't train as hard. I don't do anything for recovery. So I think it's a really good case of um, hard work pulls the trigger, but genetics loads the gun. And it's not like I'm great at deadlifting, but my genetics are clearly better for strength and power than they are for endurance. Uh, And I just think it's important to remind people because this is where they're like, if you just work hard, you'll be great. It's like, well, if you find something that your genetics are, um, are a good fit for and you work hard, then you have the potential to be great. And this is why Brad wants me to take up uh, deadlifting because 23 and me keeps telling me that uh, my genetics are, are uh, speed and power, strength and power, baby. So I'm going the opposite route. I said, you know what? Endurance, not my genetics, according to 23 and me, let's go master it. For those listeners that don't know, Steve ran a 401 mile in high school back before super shoes and when tracks were still slow. What were you, Steve? The sixth fastest runner in the world back then? High school, not, excuse me, like high school. Yeah, I was sixth fastest high school miler all time. And yeah, I'm like... And 23 and me said you should be playing football. I know, I missed my calling. That's what it is. You know, just a match. Ryan Hall, one of the greatest American distance runners, is now jacked. Well, you know, this is the thing on, we could could go on a tangent here, but... um, there's some people, and I used this example the other day. We had a guy at, at Houston who um, could have, like, if he touched a weight, he put on 20 pounds. But he could do everything from split of uh, 46 and the 4x4 four four all the way up to run five-minute pace at um, for 10K. So, like, there are some people, like, and it might be hidden away, but there are some people that just, you know... If you put in the work, they're going to be pretty dang good at a lot of things. So some people are blessed like that. Do you feel like sprinting is, is a little more strength and power? So you're kind of you're kind of trending that direction in some ways. Yeah, but I, I mean, a little bit of that, but it's more because my strength, my speed will go away. And you got to forget, like everybody thinks like Steve, distance runner, blah, blah, blah. But you line me up against actual sprinters i'll get my ass kicked but you line me up against uh i don't know a good high school football player i'd probably out sprint them so like even though i'm an endurance guy you know i'll put it this way i never trained for the hundred but i was coached by tom telez who coached carl lewis and others and he was like oh yeah if you ran if you focused on the hundred you'd be a sub 11 guy which isn't national class anywhere near that but it, it would be like a a a you know, a, uh, a pretty solid receiver on a high school team. So I got wheels, just not world-class wheels. Well, my fitness goals relate to running, unfortunately, Brad. Um, but yeah, I would say I've come to distance running not late in the game. I mean, I, I always ran, but cause I played soccer and basketball, but I've gotten into I ran my first marathon in 2018. I've done two cents. So I've sort of gotten into that and my goals this year are simply to run fast for me and run far for me and so what that looks like last year sorry to rub it in brad i had a goal of running a three-hour marathon i did do it and so i've decided that this year i would like to try to run a 120 half um and a 50 miler so those are really the two goals 
I have been training pretty hard and I'm st- like my some things are starting to bother me a little bit so we'll see if I'll be able to do it. Today is a bad day to be talking about it cuz I went out for a four like 5 mile easy jog and my Achilles is on fire so I'm like all right we'll see if I'm going to be able to do this but going to try and then the other thing is run I want to get back to running without headphones. I've started running a lot with music and podcasts and I think that's helpful especially like if you're doing for me, a heavy volume, which is like six or seven days a week of running. As someone who didn't grow up as a runner, it's a lot of running. Sometimes you the only thing that gets me out the door is being like, I have an hour-long podcast to listen to. But I find that I'm way more in my body and paying attention to my breathing much better and just more present in the world if I can not use headphones. So I'm trying to do that more often too. So run fast for me, run far for me, and try to run without headphones more often. You guys are shaking your head. You like it. You think it's a- I love it, you know, more, <laughs> more running, the better. So I'm all about it. And uh, without headphones, I mean, I wrote about it and do hard things. I love that. But, yeah. you know, as a high schooler, I used to rely on the, the headphones for a while too, until I just said, you know what, I got to get out of this and it, it boosted my performance. So maybe that'll, that'll be the breakthrough you need, Clay. The other thing that's nice about music is like, you can employ it strategically. Yeah. So like, if you're not using it all the time, sometimes when I'm doing six by mile and I'll do the first three or four miles without headphones. And I feel like I've maxed out, put the headphones in and all of a sudden, Oh wow. Those two, those last two miles are way easier. So, okay. One other thing we were going to discuss is one big sort of, this is a broad category, but it could be one big idea or thought um, that was on your mind a lot this year or a book, a theme, just sort of something that's, um, been bouncing around in your guys' brain throughout this year and you think something that you'll still be thinking about as we head into 2024. All right, I'll go first here. Um, I think there's two that I'll talk about. The first is a book that was written by Yasha Monk called The Identity Trap. And it outlines the historical intellectual roots of identity politics and essentially argues that there was definitely a correction needed over the last 30 years from let's all just be colorblind, we're all human beings, so on and so forth, because it was very easy to gloss over true inequalities and differences in how people were treated and the opportunities that they got. But like so many things, he argues that that correction has wildly overshot the target and that the pendulum has swung too far. And that now the rise of what he calls the identity synthesis is actually threatening liberal dialogue uh, in many ways that are harmful for everyone, including the people that it portends to help. I think this is top of mind in the news for a lot of people right now with the hearings that happened with Harvard, MIT, and Penn, and issues of free speech on college campus, and so on and so forth. Um, It was a really good book. He is not a reactionary. Um, he wrote a great essay on the book, which is called How to Push Back Against Identity Politics Without Becoming a Reactionary. He's not someone that says the color of your skin doesn't matter. He's someone that really elegantly points out things like the color of your skin does matter, but it's not the only thing. And if our institutions increasingly make it the only thing or the big thing, um, then we've really lost a lot of ground in having a, a cohesive democratic civil society. So that book was very good. And then the second book in idea was actually one that was recommended to me by Nate, the intern, and it's called The Disappearance of Ritual by a philosopher named Bayung Shulhan, who is Korean-born currently in Germany, and his work was just translated to English for the first time. So all of these short books, he writes books that are 50 to 100 pages, uh, were just released in a language that I can read. And they're wonderful books, and he just feels like the most perfect philosopher for our times. In The Disappearance of Ritual, he uses the metaphor of pornography for everything in society and says we're becoming a pornographic society, meaning there's no more seduction, there's no more intimacy, there's no more buildup. It's just do it, get it over with fast. Everything should be in your face, share everything, expose everything. 
in the name of efficiency and optimization. And um, it's a very, very powerful argument. And uh, he says that what we lose in a pornographic society where everything is about just do it, do it fast, and do it efficiently is a whole lot of meaning and richness that makes life worth living. Um, So it's a really, really good book. I referenced it in a recent newsletter on ritual and routine. Um, He also weaves in these really just phenomenal metaphors from physics. So he talks about gravity and how without gravity, we just bounce around kind of frantically and frenetically. And we are losing sources of gravity in our daily life. So perhaps gravity used to be going to church or lighting candles or just going to bed when the sun went down or a weekly walking group or whatever it is. Those were the sources of gravity in our life. And in the name of so-called optimization and efficiency, those sources of gravity are going away. And as a result, we're just bouncing around with no meaning. And of course, I found that just to be so poetic because uh, gravity is also used not just for physics, but to represent something with meaning. So like if our life loses gravity, then it loses gravity. Um, so all kinds of just elegant stuff like that in the book. And um, I'm excited to dive into more of his work. And now I can't stop thinking about the pornographic society. I see it everywhere. I like that. I also, that kind of articulated in a way what I have enjoyed about that letter writing thing on Sunday. First of all, it doesn't take me very long, but like just that idea of having a gravity and having and we've talked about this too, Steve, especially like with having a, a training block where you have certain runs to hit, it just gives a rhythm to your week and having a center, something to like orbit around every Sunday, I'm going to do this. It, it's, it does give you a sense of um, like brings you back down to what matters most. I feel like. Yeah. I mean, that's the name of the game with so many things. And I think it's why, Certainly not all athletes. I mean, some athletes are jerks, but like a lot of athletes become philosophers. And I think there's something about the grind of training and the consistency and the showing up and having gravity in your life and adhering to a training program and a progression and a build um, that draws philosophers into running and makes runners philosophers. And it's not just running, but running is a sport where you also spend a lot of time alone in your head. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's great. Steve. All right. Um, an idea that also came from, from books that, uh, I've been thinking about a lot is, um, predictive processing in the brain. So Brad wrote about in master change. I wrote about in do hard things, but there's been some wonderful work recently. That's kind of taken it to the next level. Um, and basically what it means is the brain works predictively. The example I'd give is, and I wrote about this in the newsletter not too long ago, but, um, if you've ever seen some of those viral videos online of, of cops, like encountering fentanyl, and they all, there's several of them, but they go something like this. They encounter someone who is dealing fentanyl They're put on all the productive stuff. Um, and then, you know, the body cam shows them, you know, maybe touching or getting close to the fentanyl. And then all of a sudden they collapse and they either collapse or convulse. And then their partner goes on this, you know, calls the ambulance and administers the Narcan, et cetera. And, and the cop ends up. Okay. But if you look at, and you talk to experts and you look at the biology of it, that's not possible that quickly. Like fentanyl doesn't transmit through the skin that quickly to have that sort of response. So what's happening? It's the brain predicting. So the brain goes, oh my gosh, I've been warned about this crazy thing called fentanyl and it's dangerous. And I've had all these trainings on it, on how it kills and transmits quickly and all this stuff. You put on all your protective stuff to signal it's dangerous. You get close to it. Maybe you feel like you touch it or smell something weird and your brain just acts out what it thinks should happen, right? It's predicting what should happen and it acts that out. And I think if we zoom back out, there's all sorts of um, ways that this will be open new avenues and understanding for various mental health uh, issues for sports performance and all sorts of stuff. So I think we're at the 
the very beginning stages of kind of like fleshing out this, this kind of theory of how the brain works. Um, although there's a lot of good research and data on it, but I think we're, we haven't quite got to the, the, so what, and the practical yet. And I think there's a lot of, um, probably interesting nuances and, um, practical things that we can use in terms of therapy and performance and all sorts of stuff around it. I like that a lot. Are you, do you familiar with Lisa Feldman Barrett? Steve, have you read her book? Yep. Yep. So good, right? Yeah, she does some awesome work as well. As I said, there's a lot of stuff that coalesces around these ideas uh, for listeners. Hers is essentially emotions need context. So we add context to the emotions. It's not like we just, you know, feel a, a bleak blanket emotion. The context around them informs us, informs them. So I think that the takeaway is context matters. And I think we see this in our, our life as well. Um, think about the impact of TikTok, social media, or for the older generation, consuming way too much, you know, news channels. It changes how we see the lens of the world. It changes our predictive processing. So I think there's, it, it explains a lot, but I think there's also, if we reverse it, there's some things that we can do to make people healthier, happier, perform better. Yeah, she has this, I heard her on a podcast and she had this great example of a karate teacher who like he was teaching young students and he told them to, they were nervous and he told them to get their butterflies flying in formation. And it was this idea of reframing their nervousness as excitement. And I think one of the upshots of what you're saying is that if like, especially Dr. Feldman Barrett's work, like if you can be more granular with your emotions and be better at labeling what you're feeling, then you like you can retrain your brain to have different responses. So you don't have to get nervous. You can get excited, you know, or you can see it as your body marshalling energy to get you ready to do something hard. And I think that is like, that is such an important thing to be able to do in terms of being like an autonomous agent in the world. There are so many great examples of this. I mean, that goes to like affect labeling and the rule of names in folklore where if you know the antagonist name in a story, then you gain power over it. So like Rumpelstiltskin, right, is like you got to come up with Rumpelstiltskin's name and then you get your kid back. Um, and I think that really represents like once you can name something, it loses some power over you. And then the other example that jumps out um, to go back to the the OCD Boys sub-podcast is anyone that's ever experienced um, mental illness or... Uh, depression, whether it's primary or secondary to something else, when you get sick, like when you have the flu or COVID or something, you often feel like, oh God, I'm depressed again. Because it's a lot of the same feelings. Like you lose your appetite, your gut kind of feels empty, you don't have energy, and it's very easy to spiral into, oh no, like depression is back. When in fact, like you just have the flu. Um but the context is everything. And if you're someone that's experienced depression, you are on guard against those feelings or your threat alarm is so sensitive because you don't want that at all costs. So the minute you start feeling it, you say, oh shit, it's back, it's back. What can I do? And some great advice I got from my therapist a long time ago was, hey, every time you get sick, a part of your brain is going to be like, am I depressed again? And you should just answer it. Maybe, but maybe you just have the flu. Maybe, maybe not. As we were yeah. discussing the other week. Yeah. Maybe, maybe not. Those are such important words when yeah. whatever the negative thought is, whether it's a depressive thought, an obsession, or just uh, you're going to fail in this race, or this meeting's going to go terribly, or you're going to lose the lines before you public speak. So often reassuring yourself and saying that would never happen backfires because then your brain's like, well, what if it does? Whereas if you can just learn to tell those thoughts, like maybe, maybe not, we'll have to find out your brain, it just loses all power. It's got nowhere to go. You walk off the battlefield, you drop the fruit back in the hole. Hmm. I like that. I have two two answers to this. One is sort of a general idea and one is a more of a mantra. So I'll start with the, the mantra, one I've used in the past and one I'm going to try to keep top of mind is just, it's not a problem. And basically the idea is, it's very informed actually by talking to Courtney DeWalter, who we have an interview coming up with and how she approaches her her 
50, she's an ultra runner and how she approaches her 50 milers, hundred milers, 240 milers with like curiosity. And it's all about problem solving. And so when something comes up, instead of saying like, Oh God, we're screwed. It's just, okay. It's not a problem. Like this is here. It's radical acceptance. How are we going to fix it? And I try to think about that a lot. You know, oftentimes if a day starts to go off the rails or is not the day I was planning and headaches come up in the past, I've, I could get lost in the fact that I, the day was getting away from me and just ruminate and spiral. And now I just try to say, all right, it's not a problem. Like how this is here. What are we going to do? What are the steps we can take to solve it? So acceptance and curiosity, get curious about it. Know that it's there. Try to move past it. There are real problems. I don't want to, I don't want to suggest that they're not, but I just like that framing because it makes it again, a little bit more about what action can I take than getting lost in this isn't going the way I wanted it to. The other thing is just the idea of enoughness, like both external and internal. So I think I can get lost in constantly striving and feeling like I need more, especially in a capitalist consumerist culture that we exist in. And just sort of the idea of, could this be enough? Um, and, And it's a way of it's a, it's a framing device that I think allows me to feel more gratitude for what I have, but then also not just externally facing, but internally facing and trying to um, realize that, it, you know, it sounds a little woo, but like not doing workouts or things from a place of deficiency or because I feel like I need to shore up my self-worth, but sort of having the idea that like you are enough and you can still want to improve on that, but starting from a place of self-acceptance and self-compassion, just... I have found that allows me to do things like run and exercise with more joy and um, not be so hard on myself, which has allowed me to create more sustainable movement practices. Love it. Just carve out the podcast, Clay. We need to push and strive pretty hard for at least a year (laughs) to launch this thing effectively. Um, but otherwise, I'll take, a, yes, I'll take go, a scarcity mindset with the podcast. Go, go pursue enoughness everywhere, but with downloads. <laughs> Um, oh, I just joke. I kid. No, I mean, I love it. We'll take a scarcity mindset with the podcast. I can get behind that. Yeah, podcast is going to be great. Very quickly to wrap up, fitness trend that you are buying or selling. I should say wellness trend, I guess. Um, I kind of am selling the the phrase wellness in, in general because it's so overused as to be meaningless. Um, I am selling... I don't know. I'm selling supplements and trackers. I just think people are doing too much, man. Like we're just overcomplicating it. And going back to the idea of enoughness, there's already too much to do and trying to now figure out what supplements do I have to be taking? Which, you know, AG1 product should I be having every morning? Did I, did I get my eight hours of sleep? What is my sleep score? It's just like creating more stress. Just. Man, just go move a little, sweat a little, chill. Everyone chill. Hey, there goes all our sponsors, man. Podcast is doomed now. Not Jitterbug. Not Jitterbug. Jitterbug. Jitterbug, bring it in. Um, Jitterbug for youth. We're going to open up a, a new avenue demographic for them. I, I'm in agreement. I'm selling all those things. I mean, if I could name anything else, it would be... Any of the extreme diets, carnivore, junk, any extreme diet, anything that that limits you severely unless you have some major problem where it necessitates that. Uh, what else am I selling? Uh, readiness scores, cold plunges. I, for the most part, I'm selling nasal breathing, overload, you know, some, fine. Uh, if I could sum it up, I would say I'm selling anything that Brian Johnson does. <laughs> Oh man. All right. Fitness trends. Um, brain is heart. And, uh, the reason I say that is, well, I heard about this tattoo that apparently took over a corner of the internet. There's the greatest tattoo of all time, which was just shrimp is bugs. Think about that. Shrimp is bugs. You'll never be able to eat or see shrimp the same way because shrimp is bugs. Uh, shrimp is the, the bug of the ocean. So, Brain is heart. I think that um, we are going to learn increasingly that 
many forms of dementia and cognitive decline, the components of those that we can prevent are very similar to the components of heart disease that we can prevent. So aerobic health and vascular health is not just about not having a heart attack or not having chronic heart failure or heart disease. It seems the evidence is starting to tell us more and more that it is also about not having brain disease. Now, this does not mean that if you become the fittest person ever, you won't get cognitive decline, dementia, Alzheimer's. There's still a genetic component to these things. Um, You can do everything perfect and still get really sick. But I think the lifestyle or the controllable element is less going to be a search for a magic pill for dementia and more going to be improving vascular health and perhaps using some of the pills that we have to do that for brain health. So the most common example, um, Peter Atia popularized this, which is taking a statin, not necessarily to avoid a heart attack, but also to prevent cognitive decline. I don't know if Atia is right. I don't know if a statin is going to be the thing, but I do think that kind of thinking about what's good for the heart is good for the brain will continue um, and, and will proliferate. I like that. I don't want to step on your what the wonderful wisdom you just shared, but when you said shrimp is bugs, I what I heard was hot dog is sandwich. That makes sense. No, no, but no. To me, that's not. That's an age old debate. I don't think anyone's debating whether or not shrimp is bugs. Shrimp is bugs. That we'll settle that on a different podcast. Y'all, we don't if have we time can to get into that. Speaking of Clay's enoughness, if we if, if so, help us, listeners. Remember the podcast. It is shifting to farewell in the new year. The new name represents really a commitment to making this world-class. Please subscribe today so that you don't lose the podcast because in the new year, when you search the growth equation, it might not come up. You'll have to search farewell. But if you subscribe, that won't be an issue. And tell all your family and friends because if we can get to 100,000 average downloads per episode by the end of the year, Clay has told me offline just now in the little Zoom chat that he will get a Shrimp is Bugs tattoo. Wow. Public accountability. Annie Duke calls that an accountability mechanism. Um, sure. Let's go with it. Why not? What could happen? What's the worst that could happen? I have a shrimp as bugs tattoo. It would be lovely. So listeners, we do appreciate you. Um, we'll keep these roundtables lighthearted and fun, but also serious. Uh, we hope that you enjoyed the conversation, that you found it entertaining, that there were things that we discussed that you can take and apply to your own life, share with your colleagues, your family, your friends. And um, with that, we will catch you next week for our last episode of 2023. Our last episode is the Growth Equation podcast. And uh, then we'll be off and running as farewell. So Clay, Steve, anything else before we part? Happy New Year. Thank you guys for listening. Wishing you a healthy and happy end of 2023, beginning of 2024. And I'm going to do it. Farewell. Farewell.